Hi, this is Professor of Photography Jeff Curto, and welcome to class session number two of History of Photography. This class session is the first part of a two-part survey, the objective being to kind of build a skeletal idea of who did what and when they did it and how they accomplished it. Today, in this particular class session covering from the time well before photography through about the 1880s. Uh, we'll pick up with the rest of the survey in the next class session. So here we are joining our class in progress. Today's class, here's my deal. Today and next week, <clears throat> we're going to race through the entire history of photography at breakneck speed. Today we're doing from about 1800 BC to about 1888 or so AD. My objective is to build a general shell. My objective is not to have you remember every detail you hear today or see on screen. Do not worry if you do not get everything. All right? The objective is really to look at the big picture. Important facts are going to be covered again later, sometimes multiple times. I am most assuredly a teacher who, when I confront something that's really important, I repeat it. When I have something that I really want you to know, I say it a couple of different times. When I have something that's really important for you to understand, I try to say it in a different way so that you kind of understand it in a different way. The other thing that's important to note is that many of the things that we're going to spend time with, the most important things in terms of the history of the medium and how it lays out and how it works, we're going to cover on several different occasions. So there might be one photographer who we'll look at three times, and we'll look at him or her three times in three different contexts. And that photographer is likely to be somebody who is fairly important in the history of the media. So do not panic if today's class and also next week's class seem to be sort of uh, uh, a little maddening in terms of how much content there is. Um, most of the time when I do this class, I do it like this or like that. Is that too dark for you all? No. Is that good? People in the back row might be a little like, you know, under the sun back there, but they're pointed mostly at the top of the wall. So, um, so again, don't worry about the details because we're going to be covering all of this again later. If you looked at the syllabus, you noted that this week and next week are these what I call surveys of the history of photography with the objective of kind of just saying, here's what happened, here's what happened, here's what happened. And then what we'll do throughout the rest of the term uh, is look at some more details about uh, thematic ideas. So important facts are going to be covered again later. Don't panic too much. So a great example, this is a while back now that I've gotten this email from uh, a guy named Mark who wrote in and said, you know, although I've been listening to your podcast for a while, it was the first lecture in the history of photography class where I had one of those moments where it suddenly occurred to me, I'm a historian. Suddenly photography takes on a whole new meaning. It's no longer a short-term view of where I was last week or a family snapshot of 10 years ago. Now it extends in time to a great-great-grandchildren and beyond. I suppose the next big challenge for the modern historian, that's you and me, is to uh, figure out how the images are stored and displayed. The current tech spec of our computers and storage media will likely seem to be the Stone Age in the year 2108 and most likely be unreadable by the technology of the day. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because most all of what we're going to look at throughout our time together uh, this semester 
are images that exist in printed form. And one of the things we'll confront at some point is what happens uh, in a world where uh, we're not printing very many images anymore. We're primarily transmitting them and looking at them on screen. So uh, we're going to talk about some of those things. So on to the images. And again, reminding you that the podcast not only contains a video that has all of the slides. Last week's wasn't very interesting because there weren't very many slides. It has a video that contains all the slides, but you will also find on that same page a link to uh, a, a JPEG of every slide. So if, if you're one of those people who really wants to know what all the slides look like, uh, that's where they are. So we're going to move on to the images, and we're going to start out talking about the prehistory of photography. What happened at the beginning of the visual world that sort of changed things? And it's a little confusing to start out with a picture painted on an Egyptian wall in about 1800 BC, but as we'll see, it's a pretty important thing to think about. So What's important to note about this picture is that the artists who made it were not looking at the subject matter that they were painting. They were instead looking at an idea, looking at the idea of what it is that they thought they wanted to paint. So they weren't looking necessarily at what the subject looked like. They were painting what they thought, not what they saw. It wasn't a visual representation of what they saw. It was sort of an idea. So the way we know that somebody's in front of or behind someone else is because of how they overlap, not because the picture has any sense of depth of the scene. And of course, the way we see that the figures are rounded, or at least the way they're trying to tell us, is that the shoulders are squared off, that whole walk like an Egyptian thing. But the idea is that their shoulders are, in fact, squared off to show the roundness of form. If we move forward quite a bit now to 500 BC, we can see these very important statues. Is there anybody in here who studied the history of art at some point in your, in your world? If you have, you've probably seen these two guys before, two very important statues uh, from the Greek world, the calf bearer and the anavisos kouros. This word kouros means male figure, male figure boy, male figure kouros. Kurai is the plural, so it's a pair of kurai here. And What's really interesting about art in this particular time period is these sculptors were attempting to figure out a way to make it look like these figures were lifelike. Lifelike. And one of the reasons, one of the ways in which they did that was this, one leg forward. Previously, statues had stood stock still. But these sculptors were beginning to give a sense of the movement of the figure by putting one leg slightly forward, giving us some idea that the figure actually existed in the world. There's also some attempt in these two uh, sculptures at creating faces that have some semblance of human expression. Even though they don't really look like expressive faces to us, there was an attempt to make some semblance of human uh, expression. Let's leap forward a long way here now to 1304 and find uh, a fresco painting by Giotto called A Lamentation. So about 4,000 years have passed almost since uh, the, the painting from the Egyptian wall, and yet we see that the art hasn't changed very much. A little bit, but not a lot. There isn't a lot of change in terms of the roundness of figures. They still look very flat. The only way we know any one figure is in front of another is because they overlap the other figure. There's very little sense of the depth of the scene moving back in space. So they're still looking at the world in an idealized way. They're looking at what they think should be painted, 
not what the world looks like through their eyes. So they're idealizing the picture space. Moving again to 1200 AD, this uh, German painting of the Last Supper. And again, the only sense that we have of correct perspective or depth in the picture has to do with the overlap. And don't you feel sorry for these poor minor apostles, you know, <laughs> peeking out from behind the halos of the more important guys. The food sliding off the table. Nothing quite looks visually the way it's supposed to look because, again, the artist who painted this painting isn't thinking about it in terms of what it is that it really looks like. They're thinking about it in terms of telling the story, an ideal, an ideal story. So this phenomenon that we see on screen here was first described about 400 BC in China uh, by a guy named Mote. He was the first guy to kind of write it down and talk about it. And what he had discovered is that if you stood in a darkened room and you put a hole in one side of the room, what happened was that what you got was a, a, a focused image of whatever was outside focused on the inside of the room. It was reversed upside down and also reversed laterally because the whole focused light rays, and the light rays kept traveling in a straight direction. They just got diffracted by the hole. So what happened here was that as the light gets formed by, or focused by the hole, it formed a picture on that back wall. <coughs> and it was known later on as this pair of words, camera obscura. This was a word or a phrase that came really from the Italians. The Italians who described this phenomenon exactly as it was. Because in Italian, this word, camera, means room. And this word, obscura, scuro, means dark. So it was, in fact, a dark room. A dark room. So people had been describing this for a long time, but it wasn't until the Italians came up with sort of an idea about what they could do with this dark room. By the way, if you go to Italy right now, <coughs> You ask for a camera, they'll tell you that it's room 406. So, you know, you don't get a machine for making photographs in Italy. If you want a machine for making photographs, you have to ask for that specifically. Una macchina, a machine, per fotografia, a machine for photography. So a camera is, in Italy, a room. So the Italians kind of figured this out. Others, other cultures figured it out, too. But the camera obscura began to be used as an aid towards drawing. So here's a camera obscura out there in the world somewhere, this box that they've drawn, there's a gear that they put out there. There's a guy in here drawing whatever is being focused by the hole in the, in the window. And Daniel Barbaro, a painter from 1450, uh, it was a 15th century artist uh, who believed in using the camera obscura to draw, said this. He said, Close all shutters and doors until no light enters the camera except through the lens. And opposite, hold a piece of paper, which you move forward and backward until the scene appears in the sharpest detail. There on the paper, you will see the whole view as it really is. By holding the paper steady, you can trace the whole perspective with a pen, shaded, delicately colored from nature. So as he's moving that piece of paper back and forth, what's he doing? It's focusing, right? He's figuring out the ideal location of the piece of paper relative to the focal length of, uh, of, the, uh, of the hole. So 
Uh, and in fact, he's mentioning a lens because at some point somebody recognized that adding a lens or substituting the hole uh, with a lens, substituting a lens for the hole, that what they got was an image that was A, much sharper, and B, quite a lot brighter. So it was easier to see what the image was outside uh, in the outside world. So um, pretty interesting. Now, what's really even more interesting is this. What we begin to get when artists begin to use this device, this camera obscura, optically based drawing, they begin to use this to make drawings, we begin to get pictures like this one. Jan van Eyck, John Arnolfini, and his wife from 1434. Now, the first thing we can see about this picture is that, first of all, the figures are really round, right? We know that they're round and that they exist in three-dimensional space. We can also see the three-dimensional space. We know that this stuff's in the foreground because it's painted a little bit bigger. This stuff's in the background. And the, back on the back of the wall, there's this mirror. And what's really spectacular about that mirror is that the mirror not only shows us the rest of the room painted correctly and the back of the Arnolfini couple, but it also shows us Jan van Eyck painting the picture. Suddenly, with the application of optical technology, realism rises up substantially in this world. People begin to use optical devices to draw with and we begin to get much, much more realistic pictures. And so we begin a sort of progression of artists in the 1400s and onward that begin to understand that even if the subject is a made-up fantasy thing that wasn't painted from the real world, that they get a sense of the perspective, a sense of the place, a sense of not only where these figures are, but that the figures actually exist in space in some way. And so it doesn't matter what the subject is. Artists now, all of a sudden, begin to understand that the application of correct perspective changes everything about how they're portraying the world. Botticelli's Birth of Venus, Raphael, <clears throat> Marriage of the Virgin. Other artists begin to use the camera obscura in a very slavish way. They're really paying tremendous attention to it. Jan van Vermeer is one of the most important ones. There's a documentary movie about to come out about a guy who has figured out uh, exactly what type of optical device Vermeer used. Uh, some of you may remember seeing the movie, The Girl with the Pearl Earring. Anybody remember seeing the movie or reading the book? Uh, both of them a little disappointing to me. I wasn't really crazy about either one of them. But if you saw the movie, at some point, Vermeer brings in a camera obscura and he begins using it as a drawing aid. And one of the things that we can see is not only the application of light and the way in which light is working and rounding off figures and so forth and so on, uh, but we can also see the sense of perspective. And it's really interesting to see how uh, oftentimes Vermeer seems to have put his camera in one spot, maybe even made a camera obscura box inside the room that he stood in and actually made the same picture, made the picture from the same point of view over and over and over again, simply <coughs> the subject matter in front of the lens. There's something else that Vermeer did that's really interesting, too, and that is that when we look at these paintings, there's something else happening that goes well beyond the application of perspective. And that is, if we look at a little detail here, optics. 
Because one of the things that you might not notice right off the top is that if we look in this painting at the arm of the chair, it's ever so slightly out of focus. And if we look in the painting at the background, it too is slightly out of focus. Look at those highlights on, on her gown, on her dress. They're out of focus. Why are they out of focus? Because Vermeer is using an optical device with shallow depth of field. He's focusing on the face, but the depth of field does not capture the focus in the foreground or the focus in the background with the same degree of fidelity that it does when he focuses the camera right on her face. So it goes beyond just the idea of correct perspective, but it goes uh, to the idea of how the camera sees things. All right. The other interesting thing is if we look at sort of similar time periods, look at the dates here, in Asian countries, the same stuff doesn't apply. Well, what's up with that? Well, it's not like the Chinese or Japanese artists, in this case all, all Chinese artists, didn't know about the camera obscura. They completely did. But what really has happened is that their art doesn't depend on the sense of realism that Western art depended on. Their art was more about storytelling. Their art was more about a different kind of storytelling. So uh, the fact that there is no sense of perspective here in 1000 AD and then 500 years later, similar lack of sense of perspective, doesn't mean that their art is inferior. It just means that they weren't using the same pieces of technology. So at some point, this camera obscura box you know, you could only paint that picture that was outside your window one or two times, and then you'd have to figure out how to change the subject matter. So the box gets smaller. The box gets smaller, and we add in this lens to make the image brighter, and a cleverly labeled M for mirror, which would reflect the image up onto a piece of glass, onto which the artist could put a piece of tracing paper and trace it. And what's interesting is that while the camera obscura room that we looked at a minute ago might not resemble a camera very much, this sure does. It starts to look like one, right? It starts to look like what we would expect a camera to look like. So the camera obscura becomes a smallish, still clunky, but portable box. So this camera obscura was an early form of creating visual representations of the world. Another form that came a little bit later, came a little bit later, the camera lucida. The camera lucida comes quite a bit later, but it forms another leg of this idea of correct drawing through optical technology. So if you can sort of imagine that the word obscura, in Italian means dark, you can sort of figure out that lucida or lucida, lucida properly pronounced in Italian, lucida would be light. Right? So this is an object or a device that did not require a darkened room. And so I'll sort of see if I can describe it here. Here's a detailed view of the head of this thing. Here's the shaft of it and a clamp that clamps it to the table. And this guy's using one over here. So imagine this whole thing is this over there, right? So here's how he's done this, or here's what he's doing. He's looking through a little funny eyepiece here. And the eyepiece is looking through... Uh, a mirror that is not completely reflective. Some of you may remember at some point in your lives seeing an older mirror that's lost some of its reflectivity, and so you can kind of see through it as well as a reflected image. 
So he's looking through this mirror that is half silver, meaning it's not a completely perfectly reflective device. And when he looks through the mirror, he sees not only a reflection of her face, but he also sees his hand on the, the drawing paper. And so he's tracing, the, the effect is that he's actually tracing her face. What it looks like is that he's tracing her face. Um, <coughs> since they're no longer in the room, why do they stay this with the camera? It's a great question. Probably because the camera obscura had become, it's a great question. I never, I never thought of that They one. changed it from dark to light, so why not change it? Change it just to lucida, to lucida. I, I think because the word camera had become so ingrained in the idea of this optical drawing device that it was like, a camera that you no longer had to use in the dark. Uh, you know, is, is a, but it's a, that's a great question. I like that idea. All right. So let's talk about this guy, the Reverend William Gilpin. The Reverend William Gilpin wrote a book, kind of a, a, a kind of a, a informal book, about theory of the picturesque. The word picturesque is, you know, beautiful how to make pictures beautiful, how to make a picturesque or beautiful looking picture. So he wrote this in 1794. And in the book, he talks about, here he's talking about how to clump trees in an attractive way. And, you know, he's got some little bits and pieces, the pleasing contrasts, etc., etc. So, but in the book, in another place that isn't this particular page, he uh, talks about his visual observations while he's standing at the edge of a river. And he says, many of the objects which had floated so rapidly past us, if we had had time to examine them, would have given us sublime and beautiful hints in landscape. Some of them seemed even well combined and readily prepared for the pencil. But in so quick succession, one blotted out the other. We should give any price to fix and approximate the scene. What's he talking about? Stopping action. Stopping action. He's saying, you know, it's really beautiful to stand along the side of the river and watch things flow by, but I can't, I, I, I can't draw it fast enough. I can't arrest it as the leaf floats by and forms a particularly nice pattern with the sort of bubbles on the surface of the stream. So, by the way, I'll be reading you tons of stuff from people in the 19th century. And we have to kind of uh, stop for a second and think about what it is that they're writing because their language is so different from ours. I'll usually go slow and kind of you know, go back over it to kind of help you understand what it is that he's talking about. But here is Gilpin saying, essentially, as an artist, I would so much love to be able to grasp this thing that's floating by, but it's floating by so quickly it's not possible. A desire to capture and hold that fleeting moment. And then there's this guy, Johann Schultz, a German scientist. A German scientist, Schultz discovers uh, something about salts of silver. He discovers that certain salts of silver, specifically nitrates of silver, darken on exposure to light. So he figures this out. He says that salt plus silver equals a light-sensitive compound. Salt plus silver equals a light-sensitive compound. And he does this by noticing that this jar of silver nitrate material that he has sitting on a 
shelf in his studio darkens on the side of it that's exposed to light and does not darken on the side of the jar that is sitting toward the back of the, of the shelf. And he plays around with it. He exposes it to light in the window and moves it around and he discovers that the solution as soon as he moves the solution, you know, kind of obliterates this idea of one side of the jar being dark and another side of the jar of this liquid being light. But this idea of light-sensitive compound is an important concept. Johann Schultz figured this, figures this piece out. All right? And then another guy, Thomas Wedgwood. There he is. Thomas Wedgwood. First of all, does anybody know the name Wedgwood? What do we know it from? China. China. Not the country, but... But uh, blue, blue and white China, very, very famous, worldwide famous China. This guy's dad, Josiah Wedgwood, is the guy who founded that China company, right? Pottery company. So this guy, his son, is a very interested scientific guy, interested in lots of stuff, especially interested in things that are phosphorescent. Phosphorescent. He theorized wrote a lot of theoretical stuff about chemicals that glowed or phosphoresced. And his early interest may have been uh, uh, given to him by this painting. Uh, a guy named Joseph Wright made this painting called The Alchemist, uh, which pictured the discovery of the chemical, chemical element phosphorus. So here he is, you know, kind of seeing how phosphorus occurred. And Wright was a painter who had done a number of commissions for Tom Wedgwood's father, Josiah, uh, and another one of these paintings that was uh, influential on young uh, Thomas Wedgwood uh, was this one, usually known as the Corinthian Maid. It showed the daughter of a classical Greek potter making the first picture by copying the outline of her lover's shadow on the wall. Uh, and Wedgwood became fascinated with the idea of fixing shadows. So Wedgwood and a friend of his who was a chemist worked out some processes for using salts of silver to create images. Salts of silver to create images. And Wedgwood is often thought of as being one of the first people who was a photographer because what he made was this. By putting salts of silver onto a piece of writing paper, and placing an object on top of that writing paper and exposing it to light, the way Schultz had suggested, what he got was a, what do you make in photo 1102, one of the first things you do? Negative. A photogram, right? It's a photogram, a shadow image of the object that's been placed upon the paper. All right? A photogram. So, Many people think of Wedgwood as being, in some ways, one of the first photographers, one of the first people making images by the action of light. So we're talking here about the very early 19th century, 1802. So enter into this whole mix of stuff, this guy, Joseph Nesifor Nieps. Joseph Nesifor Nieps. Nieps in the 1820s, was also interested in experimenting with light-sensitive compounds. Light-sensitive compounds. He tried some of this 
silver stuff, and it didn't seem to work the right way for him. He was an, a scientist, not an artist. He had no particular artistic interest in this. But what he ended up doing was he ended up taking a metal plate and using something called bitumen of Judea. Bitumen of Judea. Has anybody ever top-coated their asphalt driveway with that you know, big five-gallon bucket of goo? You throw away the shoes and the pants afterwards, right? So that is that stuff that you use on the asphalt driveway is bitumen of Judea. It is a sort of a liquidy asphalt liquidy asphalt. So he coated this over a metal plate, let it dry, and then took something, in this case, a reproduction of this etching of the Cardinal of Amboise. And he took this etching and he placed it down on top of the metal plate and put this sandwich of asphalt-covered metal plate and drawing, or etching, out into the sunshine. As light went through the etching, piece of paper with ink on it, where lots of light hit, the asphalt remained solid. Where very little light hit, the asphalt was soluble in a solvent, something like a kerosene. So what happened was that once this exposure was done, image on top of asphalt plate. He'd take the asphalt plate back into his studio. He'd bathe it in this sort of solventy stuff. And what he got was a reproduction of the image that he had placed on top of the metal plate. Now this was fascinating because while the original, of course, was made on a printing press from a metal plate with you know, etching stuff on it, and they could make many copies, this was a different way of reproducing that copy. You, all you needed was the print from which you could make as many of these as you want. He was fascinated by this. And he called this a heliograph. A heliograph. Because he equated this idea to the word helios, the Greek word for sun. What's interesting about this time period here in the 1820s is the 1820s through about the 1860s or so is a time of tremendous interest in stuff of the ancient Greek world. So you find a lot of Greek words being used to describe things that are happening in the arts and in the sciences. So there was a tremendous interest in the ancient Greek world. You may have heard the word Greek revival. I used to live in a Greek revival home in Geneva. Greek revival, a house built in the 1850s to resemble to resemble a Greek temple. That's what it's supposed to look like. All right? So he calls this a heliograph or a sun picture. Graph, writing or drawing, helios sun. A helios, heliograph or sun picture. So at some point, what Nieps thinks about is, hey, wouldn't it be cool if what I could do is take this same asphalt material, put it over a metal plate, and put that metal plate into the back of one of these camera obscura devices, what do you suppose would happen? Because he knew that the action of light on the plate would cause the asphalt to harden where the light hit it and remain soluble where the light didn't. And so Nieps does it. He takes a piece of metal, 
coats it with asphalt, puts it into the back of a camera obscura, and then eventually creates, uh, eventually uh, makes, uh, does the solvent piece, and he makes this, the world's first photograph. The world's first photograph. It is currently on view at the Eamon Carter Museum in uh, Austin, Texas. And to us, it doesn't look like much. <laughs> it doesn't look like much. It's about six and a half by eight inches. And here is a slightly improved upon version of it. This is a, uh, an actually a photographic copy uh, made uh, in the 1950s and then kind of enhanced. Because this picture was lost for many, many years. It wasn't, and no one knew where it was. Everybody knew that it existed, uh, but no one really knew, knew what it was. So these two things are the same. This is just a reproduction where it's actually been drawn on a little bit to give us a sense of what it really looks like. But what it really looks like in our world today is this, the first photograph. Do they know how long that was exposed for? Their estimates are about eight hours. Most of the... Most of the estimates that are out there is that it's about, about an eight-hour exposure. And of course, the problem is, is that during the eight-hour exposure, the sun, which was over here in the morning, gets to be over here in the afternoon. So we're actually looking out of uh, a window in Niepce's house. And as we look out of the window in Niepce's house, what we're seeing here is actually the edge of the window frame. Can you see it? Panes of the glass here. And we're looking across a roof. There's a tower here. This building still exists. The tower is no longer there. Uh, they've actually figured out exactly where the picture was taken from. And it was taken from a window that, that isn't there anymore. They actually had moved the window and they put in a chimney in the, in the building. So uh, they had to figure out exactly where the, where the picture was taken from. Uh, so here he is, 1827. Niepce makes the first photograph on this bitumen-coated plate that he exposes in a camera obscura, the eight-hour exposure causes problems for the fidelity of the photograph, because what was highlighted in the morning is shadowed in the afternoon and vice versa. So in comes a little note here from some time ago, maybe the last two semesters, three semesters ago, uh, as I'm uh, both a uh, photographer and a sociologist, sociologist of science, either of which I do for a living. I enjoy listening to the history, et cetera, et cetera. A question did arise in my mind as a lesson to your wonderful description from the spring 2009, so it's a while ago, class uh, one of the world at the end of 1838 before the development of photography. Why didn't you identify Niepce as the first photographer? And then he shows me the University of Henry Ransom Center, University of Texas website, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? I agree that the 1839 announcements by Daguerre and Fox Talbot led to an explosion of both photographic images and public interest. Accordingly, 1839 could be characterized as the cultural birth of photography. Still, the existence of a photographic image from 1826 demonstrates that crude photographic technology predates January 7, 1839. Indeed, that photography could have been said to have had two birthdays supports your arguments about photography's multifaceted natures. Keep up the good work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 1839 also saw the invention of vulcanized rubber, important but not so important as the photograph. And since I don't subscribe to the Abner Doubleday myth 
about inventing, his inventing baseball in Cooperstown in 1839. I'll concede that the photograph was the most important invention culturally of 1839. <laughs> Thank you, Larry, who, uh, by the way, Larry Lawrence, he's uh, in the cost estimating and parametric analysis in the space department of the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins University. So, That's you know, hard. God only knows where these people are coming from, right? So anyway, he's right, right? In a way, we could say Niepce is the inventor of photography. But in a way, we could say Wedgwood's the inventor of photography. So what I told you last week of January 7th, 1839, which in fact is the thing that's on the final exam, right? Not, 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 right? But it's a kind of a problematic thing. And what we'll see here in just a minute is we'll see uh, the sort of next parts. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll go here, and then, uh, then we'll take a break. Uh, to Niepce's next experiment. After the first photograph, he tried many other different kinds of images, and one of the things that he discovered was that if he was able to make the light source be a constant source through a skylight in his studio, he didn't have to worry about the light moving over time. So if the light was coming from a constant skylight source, he got realistic-looking shadows. The shadows weren't moving. The exposure required was a great deal longer, but he got a much more successful image. All right. So with that, we'll sort of uh, uh, take a little bit of a break and then uh, and then come back and uh, see where we wind up. Yes, perhaps the first photographer, unless you count this guy, Jacques Mandet. Daguerre, Louis-Jacques Mandé Daguerre. Daguerre was an artist. Now, the interesting thing is Niepce was a scientist. He had nothing to do with the arts. He had no, no real interest in the arts. Niepce was a scientist, but this guy was an artist. But more importantly than being an artist, he was a businessman. And he was interested in a faster way of making pictures for this thing that he had in Paris called the diorama. The diorama. So what was the diorama? Here's a diagram of the diorama. So here is the theatrical space that people walked into and sat down in. And here is the stage. And up here, there are some curtains covering skylights and a bunch of mechanical apparatus that would raise enormous paintings, 40 by 60 foot paintings up. And these paintings would be painted on a sort of thin theatrical scrim. Some of you may have gone to the theater and you've seen, you know, a scene where they change the lighting from the front of this piece of painted material to the back, and it looks like you're seeing through it before it looks opaque, after it looks translucent, you can see what's happening behind it. So Daguerre would bring people into the theater, there'd be a little orchestra or something playing some music, and... Uh, the, uh, the, the gas lights would be brought down, and what you'd then see is this painting. And the orchestra would play, and music would happen. And over time, slowly, 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 the curtains up above would be changed so that you saw a translucent painting instead of a transparent, a translucent painting instead of an opaque painting, or vice versa. And he'd have people, like, walking through the background with lanterns and things to make it look like what we were seeing was an illusion of a night in a mountain village 
and slowly but surely later on the sun would come up and the curtains would be moved in a different way and what you'd get is the illusion of that. So it was a, an, an experience, a theatrical experience that Daguerre was, uh, uh, was in charge of. It was his thing, his baby. And he was really interested in doing this thing, but what he was mostly interested in was getting more people into his theater because once everybody had seen the first picture, well, they wanted another one before they were going to pay up and come back. So he wanted to make pictures faster than he was able to make them, painting them by hand. And so he was interested in trying to automatically make photographs somehow. So in 1829, Daguerre, who had heard about this Niepce character, formed a partnership with Niepce. Daguerre and Niepce came together, and they began working on light-sensitive materials. Niepce obviously had figured out some stuff about light-sensitive materials, but between the two of them, they figured out a refined process that was very different from Niepce's original process. They would take a piece of copper, a little thin sheet of copper, and they take it down the street to the copper, to the silversmith, who would then silver plate it. So some of you may have silver plated something at home. It's not a solid piece of silver. It's a piece of other kind of metal with silver plating on top because otherwise the thing would be you know, ridiculously expensive, right? thin layer of silver. So it's not a silver plate, but it's a piece of copper that's been plated with silver. They would then take that and heat it over a bath of iodine. The silver and iodine would combine to form silver salt, silver iodide, on the plate of silver. What gave them the idea to use iodine? Why? You know. Because, uh, because Schultz and other scientists had figured out that salts of silver were sensitive to light. So any salt of silver was sensitive to light. So they began looking at different kinds of salts of silver to figure out how you could combine silver and salt and make, make uh, an iodine as component of the salt, right? So they'd expose that plate in the back of the camera. And what they'd get when they took the plate out was something that was invisible, a latent image. But it was made visible by fuming this plate over mercury vapors. When, when did they change it to camera? When did the word camera... Just camera as yes, opposed to camera, camera obscura? It's right. a good question. I don't know the answer to that, when that changed. Um, I would guess that it probably was an interchangeable, you know, camera, camera, obscura, camera, camera, obscura, camera, 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 camera. And then finally it just, you know, became the word. You know, but it still has its origins in movement. So here is a camera like the one that they were using. You can see that there's a couple of interesting bits about it. One is the shutter, which is simply a little piece of metal that flips up over the, over the lens itself. Uh, the other is the focusing mechanism, which is that one box slides inside the other box. Not real sophisticated, but you get the idea of what this thing is. So uh, I get this uh, note on Facebook from Marco Caballero, uh, doing some research about the history of photography, came across this interesting fact there's a possibility that photography had been simultaneously invented in Brazil, says Marco, the Brazilian. Uh, there was a Frenchman called Antoine Hercules Romuald Florence who lived in Brazil, invented a photographic process with the ones in Europe. Interesting fact, Brazil has a very rich history of photography. Our emperor, Dom Pedro II, was crowned at the age of 14. In 1840, he obtained a daguerreotype, probably became the first photographer in the country, and then he gives me some information 
on that, et cetera, et cetera. Marco's, Marco's been listening yeah. for a long time. So there, I just wanted to include a daguerreotype of Dom Pedro. The only one I could find was from 1851, but um, obviously he was a little older than 14 at that time. Uh, but uh, uh, what's interesting is that we could probably find another 20 examples of photography being invented about the same time period. Deb. Entirely possible. In Germany. So was it, what, what did this process look like? like? Depends on how they, do you have them physically in your possession? No, I, mean, I think you might remember that book I did. Yes. I've gotten copies of them from relatives, but I've never seen them. So in order to really figure out what kind of process and, mm -hmm. you know, hang on, because like mm -hmm. the next little bit of time is really about all of that stuff, uh, it is really to look at the physical object. So, so Niepce and Daguerre, collaborated with this process that they came up with. And they made a bunch of photographs, including this one. This photograph generally is thought of as the first photograph of a human being. First photograph of a person. Where's the person? There's the person. Down there. And the person stood still long enough to have their likeness recorded, even though it's not much of a likeness, because the exposure times are still several minutes long. So somebody's getting their shoes shine, the, the you know, shoe shine guy is kind of blurred, but the guy standing still to have his shoes shined is mostly not blurred. They wrote it as standing at a pump, and I said, that doesn't make sense to me. No, it's a shoe shine guy, right? Yes? Is that why a lot of these older pictures, the 1850s, they're not smiling, because it took so long to... Partly. Partly. That's, that's probably one of the best reasons and one of the things that most people don't think of is, you know, everybody assumes, and, and as we begin to look at some of these portraits, like for example, Daguerre and Niepce, uh, as we begin to look at them, partly it's because the exposure time was too long to be able to record a smile, which, you know, is usually fleeting. Uh, but there are some other sociological, cultural reasons that will will get to, but the lengthy exposures is probably one of the biggest ones. And one of the least useful explanations is they were boring, dull, unpleasant people, <laughs> right? You know, you can rest assured that pretty much everyone we see in a 19th century portrait wants to do all the stuff that we want to do, you know, go for a walk on a beautiful day, have a cold beer, you know, all of that stuff, right? So we just have to sort of put ourselves into their world in some way. Is there another question? Is that scratching your head with your pen? It's like here, it's a lot like an auction. So, you know, if you really want to say, you know, say, if you can, and you can just shout out, you don't have to raise your hand, but uh, if you really want to say something, but it, like sometimes if I see somebody going like this, I'll think that they're like wanting to say something, but, you know, it, but so be careful. At least you won't end up buying a car or something. So, so here's Daguerre and here's Nieps. Now, what's interesting about this picture of Niepce is that it is a painting. Oh, it's a painting? It's a painting. Because these guys worked on perfecting their process and making shorter exposures down in the several minutes and the assurance that what they would get was a successful image each time. And then Niepce dies in 1833. Niepce dies. And Daguerre goes on to announce on January 7th of 1839, his invention of the daguerreotype. Not the Niepce and daguerreotype. Now, not the daguerreotype. 
What's that? What date was that? Uh, January 7, 1839. <laughs> right. He goes on to announce the daguerreotype. Not the Neapolitan daguerreotype. Not the, you know, daguerreotype with the help of my dear and sadly departed friend Neaps. Not the, you know, Neaps did all the scientific work and I just did the promotional work. Oh no, it's the daguerreotype. Uh, the daguerreotype, which I will pronounce uh, either one of two ways. Uh, I sometimes pronounce it daguerreotype, as it's often spelled out and spelled out phonetically and pronounced that way in the 19th century, and then daguerreotype, daguerreotype, which sort of squishes a syllable together, a couple of syllables together. So he makes this announcement to the French Academy of Sciences and says, you know, this process is about the only thing that we can have that's the exact way of making pictures that work. So one of the reasons that I pegged the invention of photography at that date is that it's the first time that anybody wrote down and formally submitted the results of experiments that would lead to making photographs. And Daguerre said, I'll tell you what, everybody in the world can have this process. They just have to buy all the stuff from me. They have to buy the cameras and the chemicals and the bottles and the instructions and everything else. Well, he, be, he uh, ended up with this rush of enthusiasm about it, so much so that he ended up giving the process of the daguerreotype to the people of France and the people of the world. Uh, the government of France gave him a small stipend as a sort of compensation for it, but ultimately he wasn't able to keep control of this process that was, uh, that was really his. So uh, he begins to make these photographs, uh, 18, uh, the 1830s, the 1840s, uh, begins to make photographs. One of the things to think about is that some of these early photographic images are of subjects that are stationary. Because if you're going to make a picture with a five or six or seven minute exposure time, it's much easier to take a picture of something that's not going anywhere than it is to take a picture of something that is going somewhere. So what resulted was daguerreotype mania. Tremendous desire for portraits because people prior to this time, could only be portrayed in a painted image if they had money or influence or both. Whereas the daguerreotype portrait, even though the prices were high, the cost was relatively insignificant compared to having a painting made. Daguerreotype photography became big business very fast. Daguerreotype studios were divided up in labor between uh, plate polishers, plate fumers, people who would pose the subjects, people who would expose the plates, people who would fume the plate afterward with the mercury vapor. And it wasn't just in France, but it was everywhere that this happened, everywhere in the world. So uh, the prices for a large plate, six by eight inches in the 1840s, were around $30, $35, which was uh, uh, the equivalent of about a month and a half or two months wages for most people. Uh, so they were fairly expensive. But eventually, competition began to force the price of these images down. Uh, competition, being able to make smaller pictures rather than six by eight inch pictures. Uh, and what we eventually got uh, toward the end of the 1840s were pictures that were uh, much, much, much less expensive. And so as we kind of go through and look at a few of these daguerreotype pictures, I thought I'd read you a little snippet from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who we'll visit later on a little 
bit uh, to talk about uh, uh, Emerson in, in another context. But Ralph Waldo Emerson, you may recall from your maybe high school days of studying the transcendentalists, the people who wrote about sort of nature and spiritual reality in New England in the, uh, in the middle of the 19th century. So Ralph Waldo Emerson said, were you ever daguerreotyped, O immortal man? Here's a daguerreotype photographer. And did you look at with, with all your vigor at the lens of the camera, or rather by direction of the operator at the brass peg a little bit below it to give the picture the full benefit of your expanded and flashing eye? And in your zeal not to blur the image, did you keep every finger in place with such energy that your hands became clenched as for fight or despair? And in your resolution to keep your face still, did you feel every muscle becoming every moment more rigid, the brows contracted into a frown, and the eyes fixed as they are fixed in a fit, in madness or in death? And when at last you are relieved of your dismal duties, did you find the curtain drawn perfectly, and your coat drawn perfectly, and the hands true clenched for combat, and the face of the, the head is all there, but unhappily the total expression escaped from the face, and the portrait of a mask instead of a man. So uh, he's talking there about, in probably tongue-in-cheek fashion, about the difficulty of having one's portrait made. So here's the camera operator, his stopwatch in one hand, or his wristwatch, pocket watch in one hand, to time the exposure. This guy with his hands clenched as if for a uh, fight or, or, or battle. And his lens cap in one hand so that he's going to cover up the lens cap. You don't need a shutter, obviously because there's no real point to a shutter if your exposures are minutes long. The other thing that you might not be able to see very clearly here is that bolted to the ground is an iron stand. Now everybody put your finger or your thumb back up behind your head and feel the bottom of your skull. Everybody do it, gotta do it, gotta do it. Feel the bottom of your skull, you feel it? That little soft spot, you know, where your skull ends. And All right, so now imagine that there is a little metal thing that sticks in there and then some little metal fingers, little sharp metal fingers that go up on top of your head like that. And then there's a crank that cranks that down to hold your head in place. Because obviously if your head moves during the exposure, the picture is going to be blurred. So having your picture taken was a difficult proposition. And it's part of why we don't see much smiling in these pictures. Right? <laughs> People got in lines for this, right? People got in lines for it. Here is an advertisement for... Uh, new daguerreotype rooms in Cohasset, uh, DSG Doan, having fitted up and established a permanent suite of rooms for the express purpose of taking daguerreotypes, respectfully informs the citizens of Cohasset, neighboring towns, blah, 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 blah. His rooms are being planned with a superior skylight, because obviously you'd want to have lots of light in the studio, uh, and a perfect German apparatus. What does he mean by that? He means by that a lens, a lens invented by a German optical company called Petzval and Futlander generally referred to as the Footlander, Voigtlander. Voigtlander is how it's spelled, Footlander lens. And uh, that lens transmitted about 20 times the light of previous lens designs, making exposures substantially shorter. Uh, and so he goes on to describe uh, what he can do uh, and is enabled to take pictures equally well in cloudy weather as in the brightest sunshine. Pictures taken and neatly set in all varieties of style, constantly on hand for sale, a large assortment of frames, Lockets, bracelets, pins, etc., rings, etc., etc. So you could wear these pictures in various ways. So 
There is the question about, you know, stiff people or stiff process. The long exposure required subject stillness. It might not be fair to put Emily Dickinson's picture when you're talking about stiff people, stiff process. It was not really that cheery, right? But uh, an amazing statistic. The state of Massachusetts in 1845, almost a half a million portraits made. The whole population. Didn't it's it? astonishing, right? I mean, it's just astonishing that that number of pictures was being made. Has anybody ever worked in a commercial portrait studio? Every once in a while I have somebody in here who's worked in like a, you know, Penny's photo studio or a picture people or whatever. And they'll talk about how a really busy day is like 10 sittings, 15 sittings. You can imagine in some of these studios that they might do a couple of hundred people a day with rooms full of people polishing the plates and fuming the plates and several different cameras and people just coming in, standing, getting their picture you know, waiting for the process to be finished and the, and the images to be put into, uh, into frames. Um, Isaac Jefferson, first, uh, first known, one of the earliest known photographs of an American slave. Isaac Jefferson was born at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello in 1775. He was the third son of two important members of Jefferson's labor force. His father, Great George, was the only slave ever to reach the position of overseer. His mother, Ursula, had been purchased at the request of Jefferson's wife and was a pastry cook and laundress. So it connects us in some way back to the origins of our country, right? And another guy. Does anybody know who this guy was? Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was all of the things you see in that little bullet list there. He escaped slavery and became a famous 19th century uh, black, uh, important black citizen. He was an abolitionist. He was an orator. He was a newspaper publisher. Uh, he he uh, sort of led the fight for human rights. And I include this picture because it's one of those places where, for me anyway, the 19th century portrait medium transcends the problems of stiff people. And, you know, we see a guy who looks determined. Let me share with you a little snippet of a speech that uh, Frederick Douglass gave uh, to the Rochester Ladies Society, July 5th, 1852. July 5th, 1852. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that, re day that reveals to him more than any other days of the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty an unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity, your shouts of rejoicing empty and heartless, your shouts of liberty and equality hollow mock, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation of the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than the people of these United States are at this very hour. So go search where you will, roam through all the monasteries and mo monarchies and despotisms of the world, travel through South America, search out every abuse, and when you have found the last, lay your facts down by the side of the everyday practices of this nation, and you will say with me that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without rival. Not much has changed. Holy cow. I hope at least something has changed, right? Holy cow. 
a guy who is so passionate about what he believes, what he thinks, a brave man to say those things to the Rochester Ladies <laughs> Society. And, but if you looked at his picture while I was reading that text, the two things come together. That man and those statements seem to coalesce into a perfect kind of a harmonious thing. Perfect fit. And one of the things that I want you to kind of begin to think about as we look at these pictures from the 19th century is that what we're seeing, what we're seeing is a time period that we have a hard time sometimes accessing. This is one of my favorite pictures, and I don't know too much about the image. It's an anonymous daguerreotype by an anonymous daguerreotypist. It's kind of hard to see in this reproduction, but this woman's face is this woman's face. And so what we're looking at is a family, a family that somehow has been able to gather themselves together through the photograph. If you go around to any of the cemeteries in some of the older towns around here, like Naperville or Geneva or whatever, and you look at some of these older towns, and you go into those cemeteries, and you look around, and you notice that there are lots and lots of gravestones for children from the 1840s, 50s, and 60s. Disease would come through a household, rampage it, and so now this may be the only way that this family can come together. Obviously, in the original image, the father is missing, but who knows why the children are no longer there. But it's a pretty profound image that details the ideas about how photography was affecting the world. So meanwhile, in England, go ahead. I was going to ask the big charge per person to have your... Generally not. Generally not. I mean, I suppose in a bigger, a bigger group, they might, you know, add on a little something. But I've never read anything about charging more for a group than for an individual or a couple. So, yeah. So meanwhile, in England, we have this guy, William Henry Fox Talbot, an English aristocrat, a gentleman. He's a guy who doesn't need to work. He really likes to draw, but as he says, I am slow and of uneven skill. Kind of describes my drawing ability, right? He uses the camera obscura and the camera lucida to make pictures. He's interested in drawing. But as he recognizes that he's not a very good draftsman regardless, he wants to make pictures automatically. He wants to be able to do this automatic picture making. So, um, hey, Matt Newsom says, I noticed you started posting history lectures again. Thank you very much, blah, 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 blah. I did notice while listening to today you pronounced Talbot's name, uh, Talbot as an A with an apple, because I'm a Midwesterner, right? Uh, and B as in strobe. As a native Londoner, I'd suggest it probably would have been, been pronounced Talbot, uh, i.e. with a long A sound, but still with the A, the B as in strobe. Uh, not important, but having you speak Italian words on the podcast, I know you want to. So, so not only that, but he also. I'd say William Henry. Fox Talbot. Just in case I didn't quite get it. So he sent me a little sound file. So Talbot. Talbot. All right. So Talbot is a guy who lives out in this sort of, you know, think if, if, uh, if you've watched Downton Abbey, anybody watched Downton Abbey at any point? If you watched Downton Abbey, that's where he lived, in a place like that, right? Uh, he lived in a place called Laycock Abbey. Uh, and uh, you know, was a kind of a guy of leisure, very uh, well-to-do, didn't really need to work for a living, and he just liked to play. He liked to play with all kinds of things. 
And so one of the things that he did was he took a piece of writing paper, like the kind of writing paper he might have written to his mother on, took a piece of writing paper and he soaked it in salt water and then dried it. So what he got was a piece of salty paper. He then took that piece of salted paper and put uh, some silver nitrate on top of that, forming silver chloride on the surface of the paper, and made what he called photogenic drawings. He's doing this in the 1820s and the 1830s. He calls them photogenic drawings. Again, Taylor, we would call them photograms, right? So he has no intention of trying to make money. He's simply interested in playing around with chemicals and cameras. He puts the paper into the back of his camera obscura. There were so many of them apparently around the house that his wife referred to them as mouse traps because they were all scattered around, around, the, around the place. And what happened when he took this piece of paper out of the back of the camera after a long exposure was that what he got was a negative image, a tonally reversed image. What he then, then figured out was that if the tones were reversed in what came out of the camera, if he took that piece of paper and put it in contact with another piece of paper that was similarly sensitized, what he'd get is a positive image. Contact printing a positive image. So he's best known for his contributions to photography, but he also made all kinds of contributions to fields as uh, diverse as uh, seriology or the study in archaeological, archaeological study of ancient Mesopotamia, astronomy, botany, electricity, uh, etymology, mathematics, optics, uh, politics, all kinds of stuff. So really interesting guy. This is his part of his house, uh, Laycock Abbey. Um, so speaking of Laycock Abbey, your excellent podcast part two after taking a Londoner's advice on pronunciation, always a dubious practice, says Andrew Picken. Uh, you refer to Henry Fox Talbot's home as Lecoq. <laughs> this is not a French-derived name, but an old English one from Lecoq, related to the English word Lake. So this should be Lecoq. Lecoq, and like all English as opposed to American, proper nouns, the emphasis is not on the second syllable, so Fox Talbot lived at Lecoq. Lecoq, the whole village, is a protected location. You can actually go visit uh, the abbey and learn more about Fox, uh, Fox Talbot. So now I'm all, you know, bollocked up, as the British would say, right? Because I don't know whether it's Talbot or Talbot, you know. So, uh, but nevertheless, I try to do tall, at least tall is a bit of Talbot, you know, my Midwesterner showing through. So here is some of what Fox Talbot does, uh, blending the 18th century traditions of amateurs and amateurism with 19th century concepts of progress and professionalization. He works very hard at this. He's not just sort of doing it as a sort of casual enterprise. He's taking extensive notes about what he's trying to accomplish in making his images using the camera obscura. And as he takes extensive notes, he does some stuff that's really fun. Like, for example, writing down, the sunshine causes such strong shadows as sometimes to confuse the subject. To prevent this, it's a good plan to hold a white cloth on one side of the subject at a little distance to reflect back the sun's rays and cause a faint illumination of the parts which would otherwise be lost in shadow. <laughs> now, how fabulous is that, right? Because, you know, when we first encounter the idea of adding a little fill light by bouncing some light into the shadow, we think, wow, that's really cool. Like, we're the first people to think of it. But here's Fox Talbot, you know, and taking pictures of these articles of glass in his window or whatever. So, so... A question that we have to at least sort of talk about at least a little bit, and I probably should have 
Niepce's head peeking in here too. <laughs> is photography about forces of genius, these guys who came up with these amazing ideas, or is it a force of culture? And I don't know that there is really any single answer to this. One of the things that I think you'll see throughout our time together this semester is that photography came about partly because there was a climate of need. It was needed. People wanted something like it, and they weren't really sure how to get at it, but the fact that you know the Brazilians were inventing it, and the French, and the British, and so forth and so on, uh, ends up becoming a very important part of understanding where photography comes from. It comes about at this time period probably because it needs to. So there is a problem in the difference between what Fox Talbot's process is, which he, by the way, when he announced his invention, Fox Talbot, he said at first, because he'd heard about Daguerre's announcement, right, he says at first, it's the Talbot type. The Talbot type. But eventually, being not quite as uh, aggressive maybe as Daguerre, he ends up calling it the calotype, or beautiful picture, beautiful thing, the calotype. So one of the problems that we now have is this one. We have sharp, one-of-a-kind images that are the daguerreotype, because the daguerreotype was non-reproducible. The plate that came out of the camera was the plate you held in your hand. You wanted to make a second one, you made a second exposure which obviously might indicate that something in the scene would be different, the person's expression, or the sun would move, or something. Or, Fox Talbot's process, the calotype, you could make multiple copies, but because you were printing through the paper fibers of the paper negative, the picture wasn't nearly as sharp as the daguerreotype process was. The daguerreotype process, unbelievably sharp and detailed. People were astonished by the detail of them. But the multiple reproducibility of Fox Talbot's process meant that you could take one picture and make a hundred copies and distribute a hundred copies of them. Whereas the daguerreotype, you only had one. One copy. And that was a problem. So uh, the solution was this. Wet plate collodion negatives. Wet plate collodion. And again, don't panic, because we're going to talk about wet plate collodion until you're tired of wet plate collodion. But Frederick Scott Archer, a, a, a British sculptor and also a photographer, invents in 1851 a method of allowing glass plates to hold an emulsion of light-sensitive material. The glass was obviously a great deal more transparent than was a piece of paper as a negative, and so you could make multiple prints that were sharp. Were they as sharp as the daguerreotype? No. No, they weren't. But there was a trade-off. Anybody who's been involved in photography for more than about 20 minutes knows that we're always dealing with a trade-off. You could have this, but not that, right? So you could have multiple reproducibility. You could have semi-sharpness. You couldn't have it as sharp as the daguerreotype, but that was okay. One problem with this process is that the plate had to be prepared just before exposure and developed before it dried out, hence the name wet plate. The plate actually went into the back of the camera wet, and if it dried before it was developed, it was ruined. So you had to have the plate wet through the entire exposure and through the development process. So that was the thing that made photography possible in terms of 
multiple reproducible images that were high quality. What was the liquid? The liquid is, it was a material called collodion, uh, which was uh, gun cotton, the explosive, dissolved in alcohol and ether. Again, we'll talk about that in some more detail a little bit later on. Gun cotton explosive material dissolved in alcohol and ether, and it produced a kind of a syrupy, molasses-y kind of a goo uh, that you would coat over the plate. And once it dried, it became very, very tough. In fact, they often used it as a sort of paintable bandage for wounds because you could seal off the air from the, from the wound. And it was flexible, but, uh, but not, uh, not uh, easily uh, damaged. All right? So this collodion material, that's what this stuff is. Alcohol and ether with gun cotton dissolved, and you get this kind of goopy stuff. Goopy. All right? So this made negatives. This made positives. Albumin printing. Any bakers in the crowd? Any people who bake? Albumin? Albumin? You can buy powdered albumin. Egg white. Egg white. Albumin is another name for egg white. So albumin or egg white has been used, had been used in photo applications since uh, Fox Talbot's time. But uh, in 1850, this French guy, I'm, I'm going to try this one, Louis-Desiree Blanquet Everde, a French photographer, came up with this idea of using egg white to adhere a photographic emulsion to a piece of paper. So uh, something that we've all done at some point is inadvertently spill a little egg white on the counter while making eggs. And if you leave it there without wiping it up, what happens it's after hard. a few hours? It, it gets hard, so hard that you kind of need to take a chisel to it almost, right? Unless you wet it again, right? So it's very, very hard, very impervious, and it sticks to whatever it is that it's going to stick to. So they figured out that what they could do was take a piece of paper, coat it with egg white, and the egg white would then hold a silver salt emulsion to a piece of paper. Could be. Yeah, they have liquid bandages. Liquid bandages could be could yeah. be a, a an egg white type solution. So this kind of printing paper that they made in this method was extremely light insensitive. It was very what we would call photographically slow. It was very slow. So enlarging a negative onto it was impossible, especially because there was no electric light. Right? No electric light. So you couldn't have consistent light source, and the material was very slow. So in order to make a print of a size that you wanted, you had to make a negative of the size that you wanted. You wanted an 8 by 10 print, you had to make a glass plate negative 8 by 10 inches in size. So this combination of wet plate collodion and albumin printing was the primary negative and printmaking combination from 1851 to the late 1880s. All right? And what this combination of two things made happened was photography began to travel. Now remember one of the things that I said last week is that this stuff all comes around at the same time that people were beginning to recognize that they could travel farther and faster than they've ever been able to travel before. And as they did that, they began to recognize that the drawn and, and painted and written descriptions of places were not quite accurate anymore. So now that negatives could be made out in the field, 
and prints could be made later on and distributed to dozens or hundreds of people. We began to see photographs of the way the world looked, the way the world looked beyond the boundaries of the West, where this stuff had all come from. So we traveled to Egypt and Greece. It's one of my favorite ones because there's, you know, another photographer's apparatus. Yeah, sort of an anonymous photographer, but another photographer out there. We traveled to the Alps. And remember that every photographer who's making these pictures needs to be making these pictures with a dark room with them. A dark room. They have to have a dark room, they have to have all the chemicals, they have to have all the stuff necessary to coat the glass plates before exposure and develop the glass plates after exposure. They have to also have a supply of glass plates to be able to make pictures and be able to get them to the scene and back without breaking them. So here's Samuel Bourne in India. And we begin to get pictures that describe a world that we might not even believe without the pictures to describe it. I mean, if somebody said that a group of people was about to cross a river in India on inflated buffalo hides, would we believe it without the picture of people about to do that? Or if somebody said there is a wall in China that goes mile after mile after mile after mile after mile after mile, would we believe it without a picture of it to see it? Felix Biato, British photographer in Japan. And one of the things that Biato is recognized for, as many other photographers of this era in the middle of the 19th century, is hand coloring pictures to put back some of the color that was lost in these monochromatic renditions. Because color we haven't gotten to yet. Here is a description or a depiction of what a darkroom might look like, a photographer's tent, all of the bottles of, you know, and this isn't like if, you know, any campers in the audience, you know, people who camp, you know, if you camp, you've got lightweight this and freeze-dried that, and, you know, these guys had, you know, canvas tents and metal trays and glass bottles and, you know, all of that stuff, uh, so you get a sense of what this is. So when we begin to look at these pictures of the Far East or the American West in this case, you have to recognize that the photographers are not just going like they're going for a walk in the Morton Arboretum. You know, they're carrying with them hundreds and hundreds of pounds of gear. And if they're out in wilderness areas, they're also carrying not just photographic equipment and material, they're also carrying all of their camping material as well. And what's really significant is that piece that I said about how photographers who wanted to make a photograph that was a particular size needed to make a negative of that size. So if you wanted to make a 20 by 24 inch print, you had to use a camera that made a negative 20 by 24 inches in size. Here's William Henry Jackson out there with his camera. I love the fact that he's standing at the edge of a precipice with a huge camera wearing a suit and a bowler hat. I love that, right? He's all dressed up. So another problem that existed was the fact that these photographs could not be reproduced any way other than making a photographic print. So if the Illustrated Christian Weekly wanted to reproduce a photograph in their pages, they had to hire an artist who would draw the picture. 
So here's a photograph in front of the artist, and they're going to draw it. Well, they're obviously going to leave out a lot of the detail that the camera captured. So it's like taking 20 steps forward and then 500 steps backward. We're right back to where we started in terms of reproducing pictures in ink. Photographically, it was possible to reproduce them, but otherwise, very difficult. And what's remarkable as we begin to look at some of these photographs that come to us from the 19th century is not only that they made these photographs at all and brought back these 16 by 20 and 20 by 24 inch negatives without breaking them, but how beautiful some of the photographs are. Light breaking across grasses late in the day or early in the morning. Even the photographer, Jackson, including himself as a shadow in the image. So if you're a photographer and you have to record the world by first setting up your camera, then going and figuring out the, in the, you know, setting up your darkroom tent and getting all the chemicals in order and all of that stuff and making photographs in that way, what happens when you need to photograph a war? The first war that came along after photography's invention uh, was the Crimean War. And this photographer, Roger Fenton, was one of the photographers who went and photographed it. And we look at this picture, and it doesn't really look much like a war photograph, at least not what we're used to as a war photograph, until we look at some detail and recognize that all these little spherical objects are cannonballs. And if you think about it, the photographer in a war situation, having to go and set up the camera and set up the darkroom tent and get all the chemicals and coat the plate, expose the plate, develop the plate, wouldn't last very long in the battlefield. So when we look at war photographs from this time period, we're almost always looking at pictures of before the battle or afterwards. And of course, the most important battle that happened, or the most important war that happened after the invention of photography was the American Civil War. I don't know why some of my slides are cut off at the top, but they are. Sorry about that. So the American Civil War, the first major conflict to be photographed in a comprehensive way a name that we often associate with the American Civil War and photography is Matthew Brady, a guy who was a very successful portrait photographer in New York City. Brady uh, was a photographer who actually did photograph it during the Civil War, photographed battle scenes and so forth and so on. But Brady also needed to run his studio back in New York and was also slightly losing his eyesight uh, as the Civil War uh, went on. So he hired a bunch of young, relatively untested photographers to go out there into the world and make photographs. And some of those people are folks that, uh, that come to us through the history of the medium uh, that become important after the Civil War, uh, cutting their teeth, as it were, uh, during, uh, during the American Civil War. And one of them uh, was Alexander Gardner. Like other Civil War photographers, uh, Gardner uh, sometimes tried to communicate uh, patriotism, but also pathos through his photographs, reminding his audience of the tragedy of war without forgetting the superiority of his side's cause, his side being the North. Sometimes the most effective means of elevating one's cause while demeaning the other was to create a scene by posing bodies and then draft a dramatic narrative to accompany the picture. So what's really interesting is that here is Alexander Gardner's Home of a Rebel Sharpshooter from 1863. So a rebel sharpshooter, this is what bad things will happen to the, you know, the, the gray side, right? 
And here is Alexander Gardner's A Sharpshooter's Last Sleep. It's hard to tell in these reproductions that this guy's wearing a Union uniform. But what's really interesting is that the two men are the same guy. Because what Gardner did was drag one guy to two different locations and redress him in the other side's uniform. Who knows which side he was originally on. And then, of course, comes up with these captions that describe things in a way that sort of describes the, the, the sort of physical stuff about this in some way. Yeah, in the book, like, I read about it in this book, and that gun, they were saying that the gun would have actually been looted, so there's no way that... Like, yeah, so the, the, the gun would be there, right? Yeah, so he brought... Like, Maybe that gun was really alive, and it was just his assistant. That Could, was, yeah, yeah. who knows, right? Yeah. So the discovery... Uh, and this is this is interesting. I mean, it's it's a fairly long time ago, but relatively speaking, not that long ago. The discovery that these two pictures were of the same person was brought to light by a guy named uh, William Frasinito in his book Gettysburg: A Journey in Time, published in 1975. So, 1975, not that long ago, and discovery of a historically important aspect of how these pictures come down to us. So, another picture uh, of this young guy named Powder Monkey. His job was to go below decks and get barrels of powder and bring them back up, uh, probably lying about his age to get in uh, to, uh, to the Navy anyway, right? So oh, he's really uh, 18. Yeah, he's really, yeah, he's really 18, exactly, smoking a cigar. Um, another interesting thing about the Civil War was that it was a war where the technology of war had risen to a point high enough up in terms of, of technology of warfare that Lots and lots and lots of damage was done, especially done to human bodies. Many, many, many people were maimed, uh, and uh, their you know, bodies were affected in tremendous ways. Another way that photography was used was to plan for rehabilitation, and figure out what kinds of prosthetic devices uh, these people would need to have to be able to function after the war. So we spent a lot of time on the sort of literal qualities of photography. Let's take a, a brief look at some things that go beyond the literal. Go beyond the literal. So one of those uh, people that we'll talk about, and we'll talk about her in some more detail later, is a woman named Julia Margaret Cameron. Julia Margaret Cameron was uh, a, a sort of society woman, not terribly wealthy, but well-placed in in British society. Uh, she had uh, grown up in India during the colonial period of, of uh, Britain's occupation of, of India as a colony. And she had married well. She'd married a jurist. Uh, and uh, she, uh, she began to uh, be somebody who was interested in trying to spread her wings and do something different. Her family as, they, uh, as her children kind of left the house and she became an empty nester, her family gave her photographic apparatus. And it was the start of one of the more important people in, uh, in 19th century photography and really one of the most important people in the history of the medium. A woman who not only recognized some things about the way photography worked, but also began to make some inroads in ways that people wouldn't have thought of. So at a time period when most portraits, here in 1872, most portraits were knees up or full length, 
Cameron is one of the first people to begin photographing just head and shoulders. She's also one of the first people to begin to look at the emotional impact of how a person's pose and expression could impact the way that we viewed the photograph. She also photographed a number of important people because since she worked in, and, and lived in this sort of higher sphere of social uh, society, she was introduced to and knew a lot of important people, including this guy, a guy named Sir John Herschel. So Herschel was a pal of Fox Talbot's. And Herschel helped Fox Talbot figure out some of the chemical properties of photography. And he was a scientist, this Herschel guy. A scientist. And he helped Fox Talbot figure out some little bits and pieces. Like, for example, Fox Talbot had figured out how to make this light-sensitive emulsion on a piece of paper, but he hadn't figured out how to make it permanent. How to get rid of the light-sensitive material. Fox Talbot figured that he could wash it a lot in salt water, and that, that would help it be a little bit less sensitive to light. But this guy, Sir John Herschel, photographed here by Julia Margaret Cameron, all three of these guys British, Herschel figured out that there was a chemical, a chemical called hyposulfite of soda, something that we call fixer. If you've been in the black and white darkroom, Herschel came up with that chemical. Herschel also helped Fox Talbot with some of the problems that he had when he began to do these kinds of pictures using a camera obscura and light-sensitive material. Now the problems were, what do you call it? So Herschel came up with the name for this tonally reversed image, negative, and the tonally correct image, positive. But he also came up with the name that Fox Talbot could call the whole thing that he was involved with by taking two Greek root words, photos, light, and graphos, drawing, Herschel came up with the word photography. So it is Herschel that we have to thank for the name of this thing that we love and do, photography, photos, graphos, light writing, light writing, photos, graphos. So Cameron photographed this guy, and you can see that this portrait is so different from the ones that we've looked at before. Close, just head, really. A little bit of shoulder, a little bit of neck. She also photographed other important people of her time period, like Charles Darwin, which, you know, I love this picture because, you know, for my money, all Darwin seemed to have needed to do, like he didn't really need to write on the origin of species. Like, he really just needed to walk into the room, <laughs> turn profile, and say, see? <laughs> so Darwin was an acquaintance of Julia Margaret Cameron. So not only is this woman thinking ahead in terms of photography and thinking about photography as an artistic enterprise, but she's also photographing some of the more important personages of her time, including Alfred Lord Tennyson, for crying out loud, the poet laureate right? So she's photographing some of the important folks of her era. All right, so stereoscopic imagery. Stereoscopic imagery. Again, we'll come back to this a little later on in some more detail. I'll bring in some stereoscopic pictures. A twin-lens camera with the lenses placed about the same distance apart as the human eye, about two and a half inches. You can even see the little thing that connects the two shutters in these 
in this camera. It takes the same picture at the same moment. On a single piece of glass plate printed together and then viewed in a viewer that separated the left-hand image from the right-hand image. Some of you probably know the Viewmaster. You know, as a kid I had one. As a kid, my kid, or as kids, my kids had one. So one of the things that's fascinating is to think about, like, does anybody know anyone who doesn't have a television? Anybody in this room know anybody who doesn't have a television? You know, one person. Is it by choice or by economic situation? By choice. Choice. Choice, right? So in our world today, it's unusual to walk into somebody's house and not see a TV, at least one, you know, maybe a couple, maybe a lot, right? So it would be just as unusual in the 19th century to walk, the late 19th century, to walk into somebody's home and not see a stereo viewer and a group of stereo images. You could go to the store and buy stereo images of places distant and nearby. You could go to the store and buy erotic stereo images. You could go to the store and buy just about any kind of stereoscopic photograph. Here's an example of, uh, of a photographer's studio toward the end of the 19th century. You can see all the skylights up here, some reflectors, some things to keep the light from shining on a particular spot, the camera. Just like today, the quality and style of the camera may have something to do with the subject's impression of whether or not you know what you're doing, right? You know, so uh, this wet plate collodion process had a couple of derivatives. One of them was called the ambrotype. The other one, which you've probably heard of, is the tintype. The tintype is one you've probably heard of. The ambrotype, not so much. Both of them are basically the same. And they are underexposed images backed up with something black. So here's an example. This is not the greatest example. You really need to see one live to make it make sense. But on the left here, we have an underexposed negative. You can see it. Really, really weak, right? You know, and if you've, if you've taken any black and white photographs, probably you have some underexposed negatives. You can play around with this. You can take the underexposed negative, put something black behind it, and what happens is you see a positive. It's not very quality, high quality, but it works. And what it does is it allows for a one-shot deal. This underexposed negative, A, you could expose for a short period of time, and B, you didn't need to make a print from it. If the subject only needed a single picture, they could use that. The other option was tintype, wet plate collodion emulsion painted over a piece of blackened metal, painted black. So a piece of tin or other base metal, painted black, wet plate collodion emulsion on top, underexposed image, and what you got was a positive. In this case, a little bit of hand coloring went on. One of the advantages of these processes is they were so inexpensive to make because there was no extra step. There was no printing of the negative. So you got tintype photographers or tin tippists springing up all over the place, including this obviously financially well-off guy here outside of his studio with examples of his wares. Another variation or another use of the wet plate collodion process was the carte de visite or visiting card. So, Joan comes out to my house in Batavia in the 19th century. 
And as she enters my front door, right next to the front door, I'd have a nice little table and a little silver tray. And Joan would reach into her pocketbook, and she would pull out a little card that said, Joan Trucian, you know, such and such uh, address, or, you know, at leisure, or whatever it is that, you know, her, her, her occupation was. She wouldn't likely have an occupation uh, in the 19th century. So that thing that she would put into my tray would be called a visiting card. But because we were polite people of society, we would call them by the more sort of fancy French name, carte de visite. Carte de visite, visiting card. So at the end of the week, I would collect the card that I got from Anne and Joan and Bernie and, you know, all Andrew would come and visit. And I'd put them into a little album. And that would be the record of my social world. It would be my... Yeah, it would be my Facebook. It would be my Facebook page, but it would be it would be recording actual physical one-to-one contact as opposed to yeah, that's good. It would be the Facebook page. So the Carte Visite was a photographic equivalent of that. So these pictures were made all on one glass plate with multi-lensed cameras, so that you could trip all of the shutters at once. This one would have a sliding plate holder, so you could make twelve pictures on a on a plate, uh, moving, the, moving the, uh, the, the plate back and forth. This one you could trip all the shutters at once, or two or three or five or whatever at once, and you could make pictures that looked like these. And these carte de visite, or visiting card pictures, about the size of our business cards of today, a little bit bigger perhaps, would be put into the tray of the person you were visiting, and at the end of the week they would put them in an album and that album would record their social world, their social life. And because you were constantly changing, you know, you, you were giving them away, A, and also, you know, you'd get a new haircut or you'd get a new suit or whatever, and you'd want to be portrayed in a different way. So what was cool was you could not only go and, and, and get visiting cards for yourself and give them to your friends, you could also buy visiting cards. So you could go to the store and buy visiting cards from people who were famous and put them into your album as if you knew, you know, somebody who was well-known and, and, you know, well-born or whatever. A variation on the visiting card, which is about the size of our business cards, was the cabinet card, a little bit bigger, maybe about five by seven, named cabinet card because they were designed to be displayed in a little box. You kind of shuffle through them the way we might shuffle through CDs or whatever one at the other, the next one, etc. And again, you could go out and buy cabinet cards of Longfellow or whatever. You could go out and buy cabinet cards at the, at the uh, corner store. So we, so we sort of wind down here for today. Let's talk briefly about amateurism. I am an amateur photographer. I practice photography because I love it. Oh, it's nice to make money with it too, but as a photographer, I'm an amateur. I'm an amateur photographer. I'm an amateur race car driver. I am most certainly an amateur parent. Maybe your parents know that you know, we do it primarily for the love of it as opposed to any other reason. Amateurism in our time is seen as something less than. But in the 19th century, an amateur was somebody who was prized. Because an amateur simply did that thing because they loved doing it. 
And people understood that the root word for amateur was amateur or lover. We've sort of lost that. I mean, try to go to Crate and Barrel and ask them for an amateur frying pan. You know, yeah. go, to, go to Home Depot and say, I just need an amateur drill. They'll look at you like you're nuts because everything is pro, right? We synonymize professionalism with quality. But in the 19th century, amateurism isn't necessarily thought of that way. And amateurism in photography is tied to easier technology. Most importantly, the dry gelatin glass plate. Wet plate collodion, a lot of involvement. Dry gelatin glass plates, you could go to the store, buy a box of them, take them home, load them into the plate holders that you had at home, and go out and photograph and develop them later. Or have someone else develop them for you. You didn't have to have nearly as much uh, undertaking in terms of the technology. And so what we get are amateur photographers, like these two guys, Dunmore and Critcherson, a couple of uh, just regular guys who decided that the, what they wanted to do was go off on a voyage to the Arctic Circle, and they made a bunch of photographs. They weren't making photographs for an expedition. They weren't making photographs for a survey. They were simply making photographs because they went on a great adventure, and they wanted to make photographs for themselves, for their own amusement and edification. And we also get camera clubs. Anybody belong to a camera club? So I love this camera club group because I figure that the, the rank and file members, they all wear bowler hats. You know, the regular members wear bowler hats. And the newbies, you know, the new initiates here, they have to wear these little silly pork pie hats, these two guys over here. But the president, the president of the club, the president gets to wear this bitchin' hat here. That's a cool hat. So, so what's interesting about this is that all the photographers we've looked at previously were involved in photography for some very serious reason. They were using it as a business. They were trying to make money from it. But these guys are doctors and hardware store owners and mailmen and, you know, you name it. Anything that you could possibly imagine. These guys did this in their regular daily world. And now, on the weekend, get to be part of this photography club group. Amateurism in photography helps rise photography up to a, a thing that most people could do. Most people could do. Technologically, we have this guy. Edward Moybridge. Now we're going to talk about Moybridge quite a lot, but Moybridge had a sort of relationship, loose kind of relationship, with the governor of California, Leland Stanford. There he is. You can pretty much tell which one's the photographer, which one's the governor of California, yeah. right? You know, they they're both have beards, you know? <laughs> this Moybridge is a little less kempt than Stanford's, right? So. Stanford had this prize racing horse, and there's, there's probably some apocryphal qualities to this story, but it's worth telling just because it's such a great story. Stanford had this prize race horse, and, you know, some, like, the story goes that sometime after a dinner with all of his buddies, one of his friends said, you know, Leland, your race horse is probably so fast that at full gallop, all four of its hooves are off the ground at one time. And Stanford said, well, <laughs> I'll wager, yeah, that, you know, 
oxidant. My horse is very, very fast. But an animal of that size could not possibly have all four of its hooves off the ground at one time. It would clearly fall down. It's too big. And Stanford said, well, I know this guy who knows a guy who knows this photographer guy. Maybe he can help us figure out the solution to the problem. And so what Moybridge did is he figured out how to make a camera with a shutter that fired at one two thousandth of a second. He lined up a series of cameras along a racetrack, painted the backdrop white, put lime on the ground so that lots of light was all around and reflecting, painted the horse and the rider black, and had the horse gallop down the racetrack. As he did, he breasted a string that was connecting the shutter of each camera, one in succession with the other, with the other, with the other. And what Moybridge ended up doing was capturing the horse in frozen motion. And what's fascinating is, before this time, most people didn't know that a horse could, in fact, have all four of its hooves off the ground at one time. How could it possibly be? The animal's too big. It would clearly fall over. Everyone had always painted and drawn a horse with at least two legs on the ground at once. Two hind legs, front and back, left and right, etc. But Moybridge chooses this sort of set of technologies that allows him to stop motion. This combination of stop-motion imagery, amateur photography, leads us down to the path of tourists climbing the pyramid. Contrast this with the picture we saw half an hour ago of the pyramids, stately, off in the distance, a travel photograph par excellence, a tourist amateur photograph of people climbing the pyramid or Annie Oakley on her horse, or the Wright brothers. Orville flew first, that's him on the airplane, Wilbur running alongside. A photographer named Daniels took the picture. And what do you suppose happened after uh, the plane landed and Orville you know, skids to a halt and he says the first words that anybody's going to say after the first man-powered flight. Did you get the picture? Did you get the picture? <laughs> Not like, woohoo, I'm the first guy to fly. Did you get the picture? Did you get the picture? The photograph becomes synonymous with truth, proving the truth. And then, lastly, this guy, George Eastman. George Eastman who comes up with a combination of a bunch of things. One, he figures out how to make film, flexible photographic emulsion, flexible photographic emulsion. Previously, it had always been on a glass plate. He comes up with a method of figuring out how to put an emulsion on something that could be rolled up into a roll. That roll could be put into the back of one of these cameras, very simple device with a key that would advance to the next thing after you cranked it twice, and a shutter button that looked like this. And he comes up with a name for it. He calls it the Kodak. The Kodak, a name that he figured could not be misspelled or mispronounced. Kind of grabbed it out of thin air. The Kodak camera. And he comes up with a motto. You press the button, we do the rest. Or you can do it yourself. The only camera that anybody can use without instructions, as convenient to carry as an ordinary field glass, meaning like 
binoculars. Worldwide success in stock everywhere. You would pay $2, you'd get the camera, you'd get it loaded up with 100 exposures of film. You'd make all the 100 pictures, you'd send the entire thing back to Eastman at his little lab that he'd established in Rochester, New York, and they'd develop the film, print the successful pictures, reload it, send it back to you with a bill. The Eastman Kodak Company is born. And of course, one of the tragedies that we've had in the last few years is the Eastman Kodak Company sort of slides away. But before all of that happened, here is George Eastman on board a ship holding one of his Kodak cameras. Where is he going? He's going to Europe. He's going back to France and to England to sell the Americanized version of what had come from France and England. He's going back to sell them the Kodak technology. So there he is on board ship. So we'll sort of leave things here. Next time we'll talk about the rest of the story and sort of move on from about this time period and see where we can wind up uh, in... Uh